Another day, another dollar makes you wonder where your money went. You can scream. Hi, folks. This is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough. Or even if they don't, today is Friday, April 17th, 2009, and I think this is episode 182 or 183, I'm not sure which one, but if you just downloaded it, you probably know, of the Survival Podcast, which means we're getting close to our bicentennial episode, 200 episodes together, as we share my morning drive and whatever it is that you do while you're listening to my show, and whatever that is, let me say thank you. Um, I want to address a couple things this morning, a little bit of off-the-shelf, different type of house cleaning. Number one, I got an email yesterday from somebody, uh, day before yesterday actually, that was a pretty smart-ass sounding email. It says, I was very uninformed about the bird flu. And that uh, the bird flu does not easily transmit from human to humans. And uh, which is the tone of the email that bugged me. I didn't care if the person disagreed with me. And the thing was, they didn't disagree with me. I never said that the bird flu transmitted easily from humans to humans. So I wrote her back a, a somewhat aggressive response. I don't think I was mean or nasty. I just said, I don't know where you got this idea, but please don't say that I said something I didn't. Here's the two episodes I did on it. I went into claims. I went into this and that. And she came back and, and wrote me this long dissertation about how I asked for people to disagree with me. You know what? I do ask for people. Disagree with me all you want. Comments, email, forum, whatever. Go ahead. Cool. Up to you to do it. Doesn't mean I'm not going to respond to you when you make a false statement. So if you ever do that to me, don't get all upset about it because I disagree back with you. Just understand that that's called debate. It's intelligent debate. It's not personal. Don't take it that way. So I'm going to knock that one out. Another one I want to knock out real quick is a guy called in, and I don't know when I'm going to get to do my next call-in show, and I don't want to leave this guy waiting for an answer to this question since he must live about 10 miles or less away from my house. He's from Kennendale, Texas. And his question basically was, is it too late to start planning this year in Texas, you know? Uh, And I wanted to answer that right away and say, absolutely not. This is the time to plant. I planted too early. I lost some crops with these last-minute freezes here and there. Didn't lose everything, but I lost a plant here, a plant there. This is a great time to plant. And uh, if you're in the North Texas area right now, you couldn't ask for better conditions. And as we go north, some of you might even still have to wait to plant a few different things. So there's nowhere anywhere right now in the United States it's too late to plant. But the only thing you want to stay away from from in the, in the south right now, and some of the lettuces and spinaches, uh, most of the spinaches, anything that's problem with the heat, uh, because by the time it's big enough to, uh, to actually be usable, we're going to have the heat raging down here. I know it's nice right this time of year, it's uh, 64 degrees right now, uh, but that heat is coming, folks, those 100 degree days of summer are not far away, uh, but anything that you would go to your garden center right now and see lots of it there waiting to be planted, good to go, plant it. Another question. Question came in. Guy asked two. I'm going to answer one today on the air, and because uh, I think we can uh, help this guy out with this, we can help each other out and figure something out. This guy's from Australia, uh, but he said it's his son that he's asking the question for. It's not allowed to have a gun in the home. Got the impression his son lives in Portland, Oregon. I think it's the same son that's in the other question. Uh, so it's probably a wife that will not allow a gun in the home. 
Yeah, I'm not going to talk about that. I'm going to try to answer the guy's question. I have my own feelings about, you know, the man of the house at some point saying, look, this is what we're doing, you know, for our family and uh, not letting, uh, but you guys got to sort that on your own. Anyway, his statement was, well, if you can't have a gun, what's the best weapon to keep in the home? A knife, a club, a baseball bat, what should you keep, you know, available since you don't have a gun? My opinion is it doesn't ever hurt to have, you know, or, uh, you know, any kind of a, of a disabling spray or a stun gun. And by stun gun, I really mean a taser. I think a taser is a much more effective uh, defensive weapon uh, than the old-fashioned touch-the-guy-with-it stun gun. So so those two kind of spring to mind. But thinking is, you know, lethal options, able to take somebody out, what springs to my mind, and you guys give me some feedback on this, what I'm going to set up a forum thread, and we're going to all suggest weapons, and after that thread runs out through maybe the middle of the next week, I'll reformat it, and we'll do a poll, and we'll see what people think. But my thought is samurai sword, a katana. And if you think about it, before everybody was able to have a gun, because either they didn't exist or they were so new and so expensive that only the wealthy could afford a gun, or when the first guns came out, they were kind of crappy, and unless you had a thousand guys lined up with a, you know, uh, you know, touching off a little mini hand cannon, they were pretty much useless unless you had them in large numbers. What everybody carried to arm themselves was a sword, and the sword was arms. When you said, a per- to, you know, to disallow the, the ownership of arms, the thing that you took away from the population during that time would have been the sword. And that's why if you look in the Bible and all these old proverbs and everything, when they talk about death by war, they talk about the sword. So to me, the sword would probably be the best. And for quick, fast use inside a structure, you know, where you're not battling another guy in armor with a, you know, like you maybe then you'd want a big old broadsword or something, these old medieval days. You know, it seems to me like a broadsword would be a lot more formidable weapon in a battle of equals. But in a home defending your house... Needing to be able to take out an adversary quickly and lethally, I can't see anything better than a katana. So let me put that thread together, and we'll just all suggest whatever weapon could be used in a place where firearms are not allowed. And then we'll go back through and see what we all, we all as a consensus, believe would be the most effective weapon. I think that'll be fun. So that's the off-the-shelf house clean. The other house clean I want to do is my typical stuff. One, member support brigade. If you think you get more than 25 cents of value per show, consider joining and supporting us at either five dollars a month or fifty dollars a year there's a banner on the main site link in today's show notes i will be at third time 09 san bernardino california end of august it is going to be awesome 13 14 other survival experts teaching workshops uh week-long amazing event come if you can region five bug out camp out get together down near goldway texas memorial day weekend if you're not from region five you're still welcome to come link in today's show notes um if you want to get a free preview of the audio uh, version of Lights Out, a novel by David Crawford, narrated by myself. Link in today's show notes to do that. House cleaning done. Let's rock on with the show. Okay. So today's show is about patriotic gardening. And I did a show very similar to this one, I guess, about six or seven months ago. Maybe it was five months ago. I don't know. Somewhere in there. Somewhere in the 70s of the episode numbers, I believe, called the Patriot Garden, the last defense against globalism. I decided, especially with spring and all these questions, 
questions about gardening, it's time to do this show again. I don't want people to forget. I want new people to be aware of some startling, and I absolutely mean startling statistics. And this time I have more than I did the first time. There's more for me to report to you about the problem. Now, if you've not heard the first one, you know, you may be wondering, what the hell does having a garden have to do with being a patriot? Well, if you think back to World War II, when all of our young men were overseas fighting the war, and it was old men and people that were too young and women left here, we were trying to send so many resources, because this wasn't a war like Iraq and Afghanistan, folks. This was millions of American men conscripted into service, sent off, and when you have a million people anywhere... It's an awful lot of work to keep them fed, clothed, fueled, supplied. You get the picture. And there were multi-millions in World War II. It was, it was not this, you know, 100,000-man force thing that we're doing today. So one of the things people did was they started growing what was called the Victory Garden. And the purpose of the Victory Garden wasn't just because people were poor and they needed food and they didn't want to spend the money. It had a much bigger purpose, and it's why there was so much uh, participation. And what it was is, hey, folks, if you grow some food on your own, you won't go to the grocery store, and you'll use less resources. That will give us more resources to feed, clothe, supply our men fighting a war for us overseas. So the Victory Garden was an extreme patriotic movement. It was doing a little extra so someone else could have the extra that you no longer needed. All right. So that's where that came from originally. Today, we don't have two million men on foreign soil fighting a war for us that need to be fed and clothed and fueled and supplied. So where's the patriotism today? The patriotism today is understanding the past and looking into the future with open honesty and realizing the trouble that our nation and many other nations, and that's the new information, many other nations of the world are in. You see, folks, from almost the founding of the United States, as soon as we started to settle the Midwest, right after we did the Louisiana Purchase and people moved into the center of the country, and we had all of these people moving across our nation, beginning to set up farms, the United States very quickly became the breadbasket of the world. And in the mid-1900s, you know, 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, we fed the world. We fed the world. And it's not an overstatement to say that we were feeding the world. While we were in the middle of the Cold War with the Soviets, we kept their people from starving because we sent so much food to the Soviet Union. You can fact check that. I'm not making some of you guys that maybe have learned the history of the Cold War and, you know, you, you, you really didn't live through it. Uh, you're younger people. You just read about it in books and all you heard about was the standoff. You, you may have a little bit of doubt there. But those of us that were around, we remember the irony. Wait, these people are supposed to be our enemy, but yet we're feeding them because we understood the people were not our enemy. The people are seldom the enemy in any foreign nation. So we fed the Soviet Union through the Cold War. We fed half of the planet at one time. Whenever somebody had a food shortage, it was us that came in with grain from our huge bread basket and bailed them out. We bailed out the world with food. So what does that have to do with anything? Well, a little over a year ago, 
for the first time in the history of the world, the United States went from being a net exporter of food, meaning that we export more food than we consume. So we figure out how much food we send out of the country, how much food we bring into the country, and how much food we grow here, keep here, and eat here. And we were always sending away more than we were bringing in. We could feed ourselves. That's what that meant. Well, about a year ago, February of 2008, the United States crossed a line that we may never go back to the other side of. We became a net importer of food. In other words, we can no longer, as a nation, under our current production levels, feed ourselves. So if every nation selling us food tomorrow said, no more food for you, shut the door, and we had no food to import, and we had to make do with what we have in this nation. We, we are now at a point where this jerk ass, and he is an asshole, folks. If you don't like cussing, I'm sorry. That guy was a jerk. Flying about 90 miles an hour up on me. Anyway, we're now at a point where if that happened, we can't produce enough food to feed all the people in this country. And that's been a big problem for me for a long time. And, and I want to, like... To make you understand why history is important, to point out to you how this occurred with oil, I think a lot of people are under the impression that one one or two other extremes are true. And what I mean by that is they either believe that the United States has always been dependent on foreign oil, or that we've become recently a net importer of foreign oil. It's one or the other. Hey, we have plenty of oil here, but you know, in the in the late 90s, it kind of started to dry up a bit, and our economy boomed, and we needed to start bringing more oil in, and that's when the problem started. And other people say, ah, no, man, we were making deals with the Arabs back in the 60s and 70s, man. There must have always been a problem. Uh, so we must have always been dependent on foreign oil. And, and the reality is both of these things are true. It was around 1970 that we first crossed the line with oil and became a net importer of oil. And at that point you could say we were dependent on foreign oil, but the reality was the deficit was rather small. And we were still producing a vast amount of oil. And it was kind of weird because we'd have one grade of oil that somebody else would need, and we'd need another grade of oil here. So we would actually be exporting oil and importing oil at the same time. We were still sending oil all around the world, even though we were bringing in more than we were sending out. But we crossed the line in 1970. As the economy really began to pick up and people started buying their kids cars, was one of the big things that really got popular in the 90s. Kid turned 16, you go out and buy them a car. You don't make them work for it anymore. So it started to be where you know every well-to-do family, every middle-class family, even lower middle-class families were going out and buying kids cars as soon as they got a driver's license. Of course, the two-car family was old by that point. And then the economy boomed, and people started buying these bigger vehicles and driving further and all this other stuff. And all of a sudden, we put this huge strain on it, and we had this massive deficit now where we are completely dependent on foreign sources of oil. If all the foreign sources of oil turned off tomorrow, this country is in a real world of hurt. I'm talking Venezuela, Mexico, Russia, Middle East, all of it. And I'll shut off. We've got massive problems. Now, you might say, didn't we have massive problems in the 70s with the oil embargo? We had rising gas prices and gas shortages. But we didn't, we didn't shut down the economy. So there was still enough production domestically. But, we're, but now, we've so exceeded demand with capacity with oil 
we have this major upside down thing where we have to go into foreign nations and use force to ensure the supply. And those of you that aren't for you know war for oil, I understand your sentiment, but let me ask you how you get to work every day. Do you have electricity in your home that's not tied to solar panels? Right. So the, the entire nation is dependent now on this, and if we're smart, we'll find other ways. But now we're stuck, and we're in a situation where we're forced to find another way to provide energy for the nation. And there's options, but those options are years and years out, and we have to deal with this deficit in the meantime. But this is the important thing. We don't have to have oil. We don't have to have it. We can get by with plenty of electricity we can produce from coal, nuclear, wind, and natural gas. And there's most of the electricity already comes from one of those sources. So the electricity is not dependent on foreign oil. Now, you need to get around and transport. We can drive smaller cars. We can go through fuel rationing. The point is people could survive. We could keep the trucks running, all of that jazz. So with a, with an oil shortage, we can make do. It won't be good. It will be more devastating to the economy than anything we've ever seen before. But people won't necessarily just start dropping over and dying. I cannot say the same thing for a food supply. You got to eat. You have to eat. And we now have millions and millions of people living in our city that have no idea how to grow food anymore. None. Couldn't do it if you paid them. Hey, you're a farmer now. Here's some seeds. There's some dirt. Get to work. No idea. The crop will never make it through the year. They don't know how to water. They don't know how to tend the soil. They don't know how to do anything. They just don't know. Not because they're bad people, not because they're stupid people. You could teach them, but right now, they're screwed. They can't do it. They don't have, a lot of people in these cities don't have a place to grow. All they got is a balcony. You grow a little bit, we'll talk about that in a minute. But then you're not talking subsistence, or subsistence growing in a container on your balcony. Now, we're starting to see a movement to correct this, and I want to spur it on. We're starting to see urban farms pop up. I watched this show recently. A guy bought a house in Detroit, Michigan for $500, and he's refabbing it. I thought that was kind of cool. Then somebody sent me an article um, that said a lot of people are realizing that some of these neighborhoods just, there's no reason to rehab a home in them. That's why somebody will give you the house for $500, which is basically just you pay the fees and I'll transfer it to you. And the reason that's the case is because if you made the house beautiful, nobody wants to live in it anyway because the neighborhood's a pit. So these big companies are going in, and they're buying 10, 20 houses in these neighborhoods, and they're leveling them flat, and they're putting in urban farms. And they're starting to grow food, and they're hiring people and creating jobs. And that's a good thing because it starts to offset this, but everybody needs to do a little bit to win this battle. And now I'm going to give you the other side of the story, the the side of the story that will start to make this a little bit scary for you, hopefully, and make you decide that, you know, growing food does make sense, and not just for yourself, but to pitch in for the rest of the country. In fact, the rest of the world. I'm going to give you some nations that are currently now net importers of food. China, with over a billion people, can't feed itself. China is putting a tax on the, the uh, I don't mean an actual tax, I mean taxing the global food, food supply with over a billion people because they can't provide feed for themselves. China's a big country, folks. We think of China as all these densely populated cities. There's a ton of countryside. There's a ton of farming, a ton of agriculture. But when you have over a billion people, it's hard to feed them all. So who else? South Africa. 
plenty of farmland there. Should be able to feed themselves. South Africa, net importer of food. Okay, these are all pretty big nations with high populations. What about a smaller nation that can do intensive agriculture, great history of agriculture like Malaysia? Malaysia should be able to feed itself. All those rice paddies, all the fishing industry, net importer of food. Okay, let's go back to another country with a billion people, India. India has so much agriculture. Surely India can feed itself. No, India is a net importer of food. Now, Japan has 300 million people crammed into, you know, like 20% the size of the United States, not even 20% of the continental United States, probably 15% the size of the continental United States. So you'd think they would have problems with You think about Japan. Japan was a feudal society for a long time. They have massive fishing industry. Those guys, if it swims, they'll eat it. They'll make do with anything, and they have a lot of, you know, they have high population density in their cities, so most of the the islands are actually fairly used for agriculture. So can Japan feed itself? No. Japan is a net importer of food. All right, let's try a place where it never gets cold. You can grow food year-round, relatively small population that should be able to feed itself. Jamaica. No, Jamaica, net importer of food. You think about those countries, Malaysia, China, India, the eastern countries, Great Britain, United Kingdom, net importer of food. France, net importer of food. So who's feeding the world right now? Who's not a net importer of food? Chile, Argentina, Australia. Is that who we want to depend on to feed us? Nothing again. I like all those countries. I really do. Good people. But is that who we want to depend on to feed the billion people in China and a billion people in India and 300 million people here and 800 million people in Japan and, you know, Europe? <laughs> Europe can't feed itself. hasn't been able to feed itself for a long time. The only people there with really great agriculture right now is Germany. And that's drying up, too, as technology takes over. You have to think about the fact that more and more people are being dependent on less and less people to eat. To eat. Again, this isn't oil, folks. This is sustenance. There's a big belief in the investment community that the place to start putting your money right now is in ways that will exploit a coming food shortage. That this this credit mess is not over, obviously, but the next mess is in food. But unlike a mess in real estate where the price of real estate goes down, a mess in the food supply makes the price of food go up. It increases. Now, am I saying that, you know, boy, you better grow food and store food because someday soon all the food's going to be gone. No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is the price of food is going to get a lot of upward pressure over the next 10 years, 15 years. And just like the net importer of oil problems started in the 70s, it took the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s to really 30 years to really rear its head. The food supply, I don't know how long it's going to incubate before we really become very dependent on nations, and maybe we're talking about wars for food. But it can happen. If you go to war for oil, you'll go to war for food. Food's a lot more. It's easy to make a case to a population. We're out of food. We need some. They have it. Uh, Okay, go get it. I want to feed my kids. 
the prepping community, we probably put more emphasis on making sure we can feed ourselves and provide water for ourselves than anything else. And there's a good reason. Those are two things. If you don't have them, you get to go take a dirt nap really quick. So how is this patriotic? Well, if, if I want you to just for a minute think. If you've ever flown in an airplane... When you fly over a city or a town or you know any kind of community with a lot of houses in it all packed together, typical subdivisions, think of all that green space you see, all those yards. And think of how people in impoverished nations that live in mud huts that don't have the rights to the land that the hut's on because it's owned by the government. And the land won't grow anything anyway because it's not fertile. Must feel... When they see a picture of fat Americans sitting on our back porch barbecuing and keeping a beautiful third of an acre of grass growing by watering it with water they don't even have. We take clean water and we feed it to our grass in this country. Now by saying kill your lawn, become the Dervais family in uh, Southern California and, and grow enough food to supply restaurants in your community? No, not unless you want to. All I'm saying is what if everybody in America would take just 5% of their lawn and grow something useful with it instead of grass and instead of rhododendrons and flowers and things. Just 5%. How much food could, could you know, urban America and suburban America produce with a 5% utilization? So you have an acre, you do, a, you know, what is it, a tenth of a, a twentieth of an acre. If you own an acre, right, that'd be ten percent. If you have a lot that's a hundred feet by a hundred feet, you convert, you know, ten feet by ten feet to a garden. If everybody just did that, you can still have your lawn. I'm talking about destroying the entire lawn. You can still water your lawn if you like, you know, mowing a lawn every year. That's fine. But ten percent. Let's look at another way to look at this. Look at all the trees. If you're driving your car right now, just look around and see how many trees you see. How many of them are useful from a standpoint of actually producing something people can eat? What if one in every tree, one in every ten trees you're looking at right now, and if you're not, if you're inside, next time you're outside, look around. And you say, what if one in every ten trees was an apple tree, a peach tree, a pecan tree, a pawpaw, a whatever tree that can be grown in your area, a pear, a plum, a cherry? One in every ten trees in the United States, in suburban America, and urban America, were converted to something that actually produced food. And do you know how, how far our arrogance has gone? Last year I was looking at trees at Home Depot. And I asked a guy that was running the area, why don't you guys have more varieties and more quantity of fruit trees? He said, we don't sell them. So what do you mean you don't sell them? He goes, nobody wants them. What do you mean nobody? I'm telling you, I want right now, and I'm looking at these trees, and none of them really look very healthy, and I'm, I'm looking for a peach tree. And you don't have the, the, the right varieties for around here. you got a couple little scraggly ones sitting here in the back. They don't like they're being taken care of. What do you mean nobody wants one? I want one. He goes, well, you want one, but most people around here do not want trees that grow anything uh, on it that you would eat. So why not? He says, they don't want to eat the stuff that comes off the tree. So once the tree produces, it falls on the ground and it creates litter. Only in a nation like ours would we consider apples or pecans falling off of our tree in our backyard litter and lawn waste. 
how far have we come from the wisdom of our grandparents when we do that? So what I'm saying is you start planting a garden and you start planting some permanent crops. Everything from bushes and trees to things like, you know, strawberry patches, blueberry patches, uh, asparagus patches, things that will produce year after year after year. You do a little bit of that and you're actually doing something about a problem that hasn't really gotten here yet. We're a net importer of food, yeah, but we could, you know, I don't want to overstate this. Right now, if everybody cut off the food supply, you might have to eat a few less Big Macs, some of these fat people and whatnot, but we could make it. We'd survive. There'd be some real problems at first, but we'd sort it out. You know, we could, we could work with the Canadians because they produce a lot of grain still, and, you know, the Canadians and the Mexicans probably would both would, would continue to work with us, and between the three of us, we could feed North America. We could get it done right now. But I don't know that's going to be true in 10 years or 15 years if things keep going the way that they are. Unless people start to realize that the the very thing that sustains us is being taken out of our control. And it's American companies that are doing it. It's ConAgra. It's Cargill. It's Monsanto. It's all of these countries. They are building up massive resources in the third world, using farming lands in third world nations that have starving people to produce food to send to us. And how long are those, you know, they're buying their way into those countries. They're, They're coming in, they're loaning those people money, they're making them grow these crops to pay off the debt on the loans. They're bribing officials. They're doing whatever it takes. The same thing they do here. They call it lobbying now instead of bribing, by the way. But, you know, sooner or later, a hungry nation's going to stand up and go, wait a minute, we have all those farms over there. Where the hell's the food going? And you have the blood in the streets revolutions in some of these nations, and they nationalize the food supply and say, we're going to feed our own people first. We've got a real problem at that point said, if we'll go to war for oil, we'll go to war for food. Do you guys want to go to war for food? Seriously? And I'm telling you, that's where this nation is headed. It is not alarmist. It is not Alex Jones. It is not conspiracy theory. All you have to do is look at our own government statistics that say, more food in than out. Same thing happened with oil in 1970. More oil in than out. How much dependence do we have on the rest of the world for our energy right now? Is there any reason to believe that if we stay the course with where we are now, without individual action, that our nation in 30 years won't be as dependent on the rest of the world for food as we are right now on the rest of the world for oil? And let me bounce this one off you. As these nations, like Chile and Argentina, continue to grow their population, which they are, massively growth of their population, move more and more people to their cities, which is what China and India have done. That's why China and India have gone from net exporter to net importer themselves, because they've moved these massive numbers of people into urban areas. There's less people in the farmlands to farm. The kids grow up, they don't want to be farmers, they want to go to the city and get a good job and work on a computer and make video games or some damn thing. And you can't blame them. It's a lot easier of a life. I think it's less rewarding, but when you're 16, 17, getting ready to go to college, you don't think that way. Well, these other nations, Argentina, Chile, 
they're going to go through this same process. They're already starting. All of these Latin American nations that are currently feeding us are going there right now. What happens is less and less nations can feed themselves. It's not like oil where we can just start drilling another hole and go, eh, there's some more. Uh, We didn't know about this. Look at this. There's a billion gallons down there. Let's start pumping it. You want to farm, you have to actually know how to do it. You have to have somebody capable of doing it. The reason the Soviet Union almost starved to death and we had to feed them is because during the Communist Revolution, they killed all the farmers. What do you think? What did a farmer ever do to anybody? Farmers owned the land. They were rich. They're wealthy landowners. Communist Revolution came. Lenin came in. Kill them all. Kill all the farmers. <laughs> then he said, okay, people, now the people own the land. Cooperative farming. Get in there and farm. But nobody knew how to do it because all the people who knew how to do it were dead. So they went in, and they fumbled around for a couple of years and finally started to get it sort of right, but they could never produce at the same level. So the communists went in and took all the food from the farmers, brought it to the cities to feed the city people, and the farmers were starving to death. So Lenin said, we'll solve that again. Go in there and kill them all. So they killed them all again, and then took some people from the cities back to the farms to bring the population down to where they could, they could feed themselves. Or at least sort of feed themselves. That's how they got in that mess. And then World War II happened, and that put down a damper on the population. But as it rebuilt, they were in the same mess. They couldn't feed themselves. That's why we had to feed them. So once a people lose the the knowledge of how to farm, and the land gets used up, because it's being done with these massively intensive uh, agriculture programs that are so dependent on um, things like uh, chemical fertilizers, that sooner or later, the land won't produce well anymore. When those two things happen simultaneously, which is what's going on right now, sooner or later, you get to a point where the whole world can't feed itself. Think about, again, the nations I've already just given you. The United Kingdom, Japan, China, India. The United States. Net importers of food. Jamaica, Malaysia, Japan. Net importers of food. How many more nations will make the leap before countries decide, you know, we need to start keeping more of our food here at home? What will that do to the food supply? What will that do to our country? How many people out there in the world still know how to farm? And how many other nations have subdivisions like ours? Have these beautiful suburban lots in different climates from Maine to California and from Florida to to Alaska. We have all this available land and all it takes is a little bit of effort. And that's why I think you should guard beyond just the fact that as a prepper you have a food supply that can't run out because you can continue to produce for yourself. Because it's necessary if we really want to keep our nation independent for everybody to do a little bit. And if you could go in your backyard once a month and dig a little bit and produce yourself about five gallons of gasoline, you'd probably do it. Well, you can't. But you can produce food for yourself, you can produce food for your family, and if you produce too much, and most people that give it a real shot will, if you have enough land to put in a nice little garden spread, then you can put some in a bag and you can hand it to your neighbor and you can spread the addiction. Resistance is fertile. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. 
can scream and you can holler It really doesn't matter Cause it all gets spent 